Thank you so much for coming tonight. It's great to be with you on this Good Friday. It's a different kind of service that we have here on Good Friday. On Sunday mornings, we like to celebrate, don't we? And, and we do, and we will in a couple days. But there is a certain rhythm, an emotional rhythm that is necessary as we come to Good Friday and we reflect upon the profound nature of Jesus' sacrifice for us and what it was that put Him on the cross. Tonight we're going to do a couple different things, at least in the short message that I will give, and then we'll take communion and sing. But the two things that I would like to hopefully accomplish here in this evening's message are, number one, to kind of put a wrap on our Unhurry Already series with one final word, one final practice that we might consider as it relates to Good Friday, and we might consider as we continue to go forward from this series. The second thing, though, that we want to do is even more important than that. The second thing is simply to take communion together, to look at the cross and to remember what Christ has done and to meditate on the magnitude of it as we reflect upon a few of the lines from the crucifixion narrative that we just read. I'm going to start with this final idea, this final practice in our Unhurry Already series, and then we'll move toward communion together. You know, soul fatigue is a deep and dreadful thing, is it not? Do you experience any soul fatigue these days? The reason that we did this series over the last seven weeks is because we have experienced a higher level of soul fatigue as a nation over these past number of years. I've heard it and I've seen it. I've felt it myself. And so we decided to do a different kind of series in which we would pause and we would say, what would it look like for us to unhurry already and try to address the soul fatigue that overcomes our bodies and our minds and even our souls? When we sleep seven hours, or oftentimes much less than that, but our pre-industrial age grandfathers and grandmothers would sleep 10 to 11 hours regularly, and we sleep only seven. When we replace those additional four hours that we get back each day with less sleep, with lots and lots of coffee in the morning, and Red Bull in the afternoon, and ice cream at midnight, and blue light throughout the day, we start to feel soul fatigue. When we make time for one more errand that just has to be done, but we cannot seem to find time for exercise, when we're bombarded by information and by news stories each and every day, all day, our souls feel a level of fatigue. When our inboxes overflow, and our work week begins to leak into Sunday, when it feels like we get no Sabbath rest, as we talked about last Sunday, we feel that soul fatigue. So also we feel it when we wake up each morning and we have to ask questions about which shoes must I wear so I can most impress my audience today out of my 30 pairs. Okay, not mine. I don't have 30. But which ones do I have to wear to impress? Or 
how would I post another Instagram post to impress by the hour? And then you go home in the evening after nine hours of work or whatever it is for you, and after you get the kids to bed, you sit down with a friend or by yourself, you sit down with your wife, your husband, and you turn on the TV to find a thousand different options to entertain yourself as you start to feel numb from all the choices. This produces fatigue to our bodies, to our minds, yes, indeed, to our souls. But when we come to Good Friday, we realize that our souls really just need one decision. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every day, every hour, I need you. That's the one decision that we come to as we enter Good Friday and Holy Week. Friends, amongst the most important decisions that we will make for slowing down is the word that I want to talk with you for just 10 minutes about this evening. We've been talking over these past six weeks about six other words, six other spiritual practices that have been done by Christians across the ages, all for the purpose of slowing us down and increasing the duration of the time that we might spend with God that we might enjoy his presence once again because in his presence is fullness of joy. That we might realize well once again that he intends for us abundant life, but abundant life is only found in his presence. Amen. Okay, one more word in addition to the six that we've already covered. One more spiritual practice that serves as a gift for us as we reorder our priorities. The first six were these, the practice of Lent that many of us have gone through over the past 42 days. Silence and solitude, simplicity, meditation on the Word of God, on choice, short passages of the Word of God, fasting and prayer, which many of us experienced again for the first time in a long, long time here a couple weeks ago, and we got an hour to be with God. Sabbath, and then finally to today, the last spiritual practice in our Unhurry Already series is a different one than many of us think of in terms of a practice, but it's every bit as important as the others that we've discussed. It is so powerful for fighting spiritual hurry and spiritual apathy. And it's repentance. Repentance is a weapon in the battle against spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy is a scourge in our nation today. People want a Christian nation without wanting to live out Christ. And repentance is a weapon in the fight against that spiritual apathy that has overtaken many, perhaps even in this room tonight. Repentance is simply this. It is agreeing with God about our sin, and then it's turning away from it. It's saying, God, what you say about me is right. I cannot make excuses. What you say is correct. I agree with you about my sin, and I commit to turning the other way. 
All the spiritual disciplines require us to stop doing something and to start doing something better. Repentance requires reflection, that we would pause and we would reflect on ways that we have missed the mark, and in the midst of that reflection, we would repent of ways that we have failed God's standard, and in that reflection, we slow down, and we keep short accounts with God, and we humbly ask Him for forgiveness, and we reorder our priorities back toward Him again, which helps us with soul fatigue as well. I love the way Isaiah puts it. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Isaiah 30, verse 15. It goes like this. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Just sit on that for a moment. We repent and then we exhale. And God gives us his salvation. From the cross, we bring nothing. In quietness and trust before a holy God comes our strength. Now, there's this haunting line at the end of that verse, isn't there? That Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, this is what God has offered to you, but you would have none of it. I offered you repentance and rest for your salvation. Quietness and trust would be your strength. But Israel, you would have none of it. Many of us have decided over these past several weeks that we would like some of that, right? We would like some of that rest. We would like some of that quietness that brings about a genuine, deep life in Christ, genuine strength for the battles that we all face. Here's what many of us have learned in this message series. Many of us have learned that we've loved staying busy more than we have loved being present with people whom we love. Many of us have learned in this sermon series that we actually love phones and clothes and material stuff more than we love generosity and simplicity, which make us far more rich by far. Many of us have learned in this series that We've loved living through our kids' activities more than we've loved dwelling in the presence of God. We've learned that we oftentimes love our images of being an achiever or a producer more than we've loved simply being a receiver of the love and the mercy of God. And for many of us, God has challenged us to see how we get our sense of value from stuff and status and from the things we do as opposed to getting our sense of value from the one who alone is God. As opposed to getting our sense of value from, in repentance, I rest in the presence of your love and your holiness, your mercy covers over me and I get all of my sense of value from you, not from what I bring to the table. We see a reflection on this of sorts, at least an illustration of it in the midst of our uh, crucifixion passage this evening. You see these two criminals who are with Jesus at the place of the skull as they are also being crucified with him. I want you to notice the experience of repentance that one of them has, the other one doesn't. 
Look at verse 32 if you happen to have Luke chapter 23. That's what we read out of the, this evening. If you don't have your Bible, that's just fine. This will be up on the screen. But we read the crucifixion narrative though, this evening out of the book of Luke chapter 23. And I'm looking at verse 32 right now. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there. It's called a skull because this place in Jerusalem literally is in a mountainside and it looks like a skull. There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This certainly was a man from another place, was he not? Like, I, I mean, to imagine, here's these guys who have stripped him naked. He didn't have a, a loincloth on. They stripped him naked. They put a crown of thorns around his forehead. They put eight-inch nails in his hands and feet. They take the tunic that his mother gave to him, and they're throwing dice for it. And Jesus looks at them. He says, Father, please forgive them. This is a man from another place. <laughs> you read that line alone, you say, this is not a man from this earth. This is a man with supernatural power. This is God in flesh. Now, you have these two different criminals with their different responses to Jesus in this moment. And what I, I want you to notice in these two different criminals is that God wants both of them, just like he wants every person in this world, every person in this room, every person in your neighborhood, he wants us all to come to him. 2 Peter 3 says, God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some think of slowness. No, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to Repentance. He wants all people to come to repentance, but he will not force his hand on anyone. He is a gentleman that will allow us to have our own way if we say, no, God, I am going to be the king over my domain. He'll allow that. He's a gentleman who will allow that. And you see both of these as examples for us in this narrative. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? What a joke. Save yourself and us. He laughs at Jesus. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since we are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. We are punished justly. Don't you fear God? For we are getting what our sins, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus Remember me. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Please don't miss what's going on here. Uh, we don't know exactly what this criminal did, but it was bad enough to get the death penalty. Okay, whatever this man did was bad enough to get the death penalty. 
And he turns to Jesus, and he sees something glorious about Jesus, something remarkably different, even supernatural about Jesus, and he fears God. And he looks at himself in the mirror, and he says, I am getting what I deserve. Jesus, would you please remember me? He says, perhaps you are the Messiah that some say you were. Would you please remember me? And in an instant, that man's excruciating pain was transformed into the most exquisite paradise as he trusted in Christ in that moment through the gift, through the gift of repentance. We don't like repentance. We don't like this word today. But friends, repentance is a gift for us. I pray that even though the word repentance is no longer popular out there, it would stay popular in here. I pray it would. Like the word sin is not popular out there. I pray it would stay popular in here. Not popular because we do it a lot, but (laughs) you know what I'm saying. That we would not shy away from talking about what is real that took Jesus to the old rugged cross. Here's the singular idea for this evening. I know you're not taking notes, but perhaps you'll remember this. God welcomes us and he keeps growing us through the gift of repentance. It's not a have to, it's a get to. It's a gift. He welcomes us into his kingdom and then also he keeps on growing us through the gift of repentance. Frankly, I worry about Christians who cannot seem to apologize. I do. I worry about Christians who seem to notice other people's sins, but don't seem to notice their own. I worry about them because Jesus seemed to worry about them when he spoke against Pharisees so strongly who were just doing that, focusing on other people's and too self-righteous to apologize. That's pride. Tim Keller, the author of a wonderful book called Prodigal God, says it this way, Christians repent for the very roots of their own righteousness. We have our own self-righteousness, each and every one of us do, We try to prop ourselves up in different ways. That's self-righteousness. Christians repent of the very roots of their own self-righteousness. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all of our righteousness. The sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. You see, in the New Testament and across Christian history, confession of sin is simply a pattern of life. It's not a one-time act, as many Christians have been led to believe that's all it is. I I, I just don't understand how some Christians have been led to believe that repentance is something you simply do when you become a Christian and then you're done with it. It's a regular act that we see in the Scriptures again and again and again for the purpose of keeping short accounts with God, and it's been practiced by Christians across the centuries as such. We repent of the very roots of our own self-righteousness, as Keller says. I don't know about you, but like you can look at the outside and sometimes I look like I'm put together. Other times less so. 
Okay, but like you can look at the outside and say, well, that's some nice bark on that tree. When underneath that tree, I happen to know down at the level of the roots, there is disease. There is disease down the level of the roots of my tree that include anger at times, spiritual laziness at times, pride at times. I don't know what it would be for you, but those are the things that I can present that I need to repent of. This is why we practice communion here on the first Sunday of each month. It's the same reason that many Christians across the world actually practice communion every single week. It's the same reason that perhaps we would be wise to use this gift that God has given us to reflect on a daily basis God, how have I missed your standards and what I have done and what I have failed to do? Father, would you please forgive me of that, that I could keep short accounts with you? Martin Luther, at the dawn of the Reformation, uh, decided to protest what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. It's not happening right now, but at the time, there was a selling of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church where the church was being taught people could go to heaven as you would donate money to the church, and then you would spring your family members directly out of purgatory and into heaven. Oh, my goodness. And they could really donate and promote themselves immediately into heaven when they die as well. There was even this little jingle, each and every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And Martin Luther said, "Uh uh-uh, I've read the Bible, Uh uh-uh. And so he decided to write these 95 theses, these 95 statements, um, summary statements of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he took out his hammer, he took out some nails, and he, he nails it to this cathedral door, this Wittenberg door in Germany. And the very first of these theses in his 95 statements of protest to the church that eventually lit the fuse that became the bomb of the Reformation, the very first of the theses went, 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 like, went like this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, he willed that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Wow. That doesn't sound anything like contemporary American Christianity, does it? It doesn't, does it? Like, this was a man who got it when it came to the gospel. He understood that what we bring to God is this. Empty hands. That's all we bring. And God, please forgive me. We could engage this this beautiful practice, this spiritual discipline, this gift on a daily basis this way. Maybe you as a family, you pray the Lord's Prayer in the evening. What if while you pray the Lord's Prayer, you get to the line, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And when you get to that line, you pause and you list out your trespasses to God. One of the things that we do in our home is we regularly pray the final two lines of Psalm 139 right before we all go to bed, in which King David says, 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's anything wrong in me. See if there's anything offensive in me and lead me in your way everlasting. God, is there any way that I have missed the mark that you would want to redirect me back toward you? Friends, what we remember on Good Friday is the same thing that we ought to give thanks to God for each and every day. It's this. Jesus Christ paid a criminal's death to die for my crimes against God. That's what we should remember every day. Jesus Christ paid a criminal's death to die for your crimes against a holy God. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In repentance and rest is my salvation. In quietness and trust is my peace. And out of repentance comes this reprioritization of life that my disordered priorities get ordered again. That a thousand other distractions get moved away and I start to focus again on the one who alone is God. And then he washes us and renews us each and every time such that we live out of his grace and more and more into his holiness as we recognize our need for God on a daily basis. What a gift that God has given to us that we would keep our priorities right. There's really one priority for those who would commit to unhurry already. It's the priority of worship, isn't it? I give myself to you. And so, whatever ways that I have missed the mark, I confess those. I ask your forgiveness, and I ask you to get me back on course. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you're a holy God. We really do not want to worship a God that's weak in the knees. We give thanks, Lord, that you have really high standards. We give thanks, Lord, that you desire to do work in us that we would be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And oh, we give thanks, Lord, that when we miss the mark, we can come to you and receive your forgiveness once again and recenter our lives. We thank you, God, for the gift of repentance, of confession. And so, Lord, we choose to do that right now before we take communion. We just take a few moments of silence right now. And it's our time to be honest with you. The Bible says that if we pretend we are without sin, we make God out to be a liar. And so we pause 
And we ask that you would search us and know us, oh God. Oh, Father, for what we have done and what we have left undone, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We confess that at times we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry. And we humbly repent. We recognize that our sin was awful enough to Send your son to the cross. And yet your mercy is great enough to forgive us still. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for enduring such pain and even shame. And thank you for forgiving us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, that, that is a heavy message, I know. But here is the exhale. Listen. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, the beloved disciple, the Apostle John, says to his church in Ephesus, just a few short years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, then our God is faithful. Our God is just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to wash us, to renew us, to purchase our freedom and set our course toward Christ once again. Glory to God.